Welcome to another edition of MonkCast, a podcast from the Benedictine monks of St. Benedict's Abbey. And today we're here with Father Matthew Hobbiger, who in 2018 is going to celebrate 50 years of priestly service. And so, Father Matthew, I want to thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be with you, J.D. So why don't we just start out, uh, talk a little bit about your upbringing. So what inspired you to, you know, look towards the priesthood as a, you know, something that, a life that you wanted to pursue? Well, J.D., as a kid growing up, you're always looking at different uh, options, what's, what's all available out there, and different things appeal to you, different things you sort of admire. I guess I admired the uh, parish priests that I knew and various uh, religious order priests, Benedictines, Capuchins, Franciscans, and others. And, uh, um, and divine providence has its own ways of drawing upon a person to find out what they're called to do. So um, um, the whole notion of the priesthood kept growing upon me. I had had this inclination already from the 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. I can remember definite uh, occasions, you know, when, when this would come up. And then, as Providence would have it, uh, when I was a, a teenager, there was a, a, a minor seminary at Victoria, Kansas, which is only about 20 miles further west of Russell, Kansas, where I was, where my family was living at the time, that had a high school boarding uh, minor seminary. And um, uh, it was just kind of a natural. My brother was already there. But it was a wonderful place to sort of foster the seeds of a vocation. And I was there for two years, and then tra- eventually transferred to Atchison to Mar Hill, which at that time had what they called a scholasticate, which was a, um, a, a special uh, uh, effort program designed for young men considering priesthood. And so I, I was there for my junior and senior years, and uh, one thing leads to another. But you can see that uh, um, my family was uh, very strong in their faith. Uh, my parents' idea of quality time <laughs> was walking to daily Mass from our home to the parish church and the Mass and, and returning. And that makes an impression upon a young person. I dare say it made an impression upon all the neighbors, too. You know, but uh, um, back in those years, back in the 50s, it was, uh, it was very Im- impressive on me. But uh, uh, it's the quality of God, and eventually one discovers that, and it grows upon you. You're tested along the way, but if you stay with it, you discover that's what you're called to do. So your father obviously had a, an interest. Uh, I say obviously, but it's not obvious to the listener yet. But your father went on later after your mother passed to join the monastery here also. So uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? Maybe what do you think inspired him to make that decision? And uh, maybe talk about your own ordination and uh, how that all, all came together. Well, my mother and father had made a decision that uh, if one of them died, the other one would probably donate the rest of his or her life to the service of the church. And they were very much attracted to the Benedictines. Uh, My father's a graduate of the old St. Benedict's College in 1927, and just a very strong attraction to what the Benedictines uh, were doing and who they were. So um, my mother contracted um, uh, cancer, um, and uh, after about five years, uh, she died uh, when I was a senior in college. And uh, uh, over that period of time, you could imagine, you know, my father was preparing himself for what would take place afterwards. So within five months, he made application of my mother's death. He made application for entrance to the monastery as a novice. 
So it was quite interesting. Here, yours truly, is a what you call a junior monk, and my brother was what two or three years ahead of me, and my dad was a novice. <clears throat> so I remember asking him once, uh, how, "What am I supposed to call you?" You know, because at that time we had all sorts of formal titles. You know, if you were a priest, you were father; if you were a, a cleric, you were frater. You know, Latin for brother. If you were one of the uh, 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 regular brothers, brother. See. So I asked him, what am I supposed to call you? He says, why don't you just call me dad? <laughs> so uh, you guys, uh, ultimately, as you said, your brother was a little ahead of you, and uh, your father was just uh, behind you in formation here in the monastery. So you, the three of you were scheduled to be ordained together. So if you can tell me about that experience, about being ordained alongside your father and your brother. Well, it's, it's, it's kind of remarkable. Um, um, I caught up with my brother. Um, first of all, I, I, I went to kindergarten when I was four years old. <clears throat> That's one year I picked up on him. And other things intervened. So I caught up with him, and uh, we were ready to be ordained together in 1968. My father still had one year of theology ahead of him. But the decision here was, well, why go through the same ceremony twice and invite the same people back here twice? Let's put them together. So they ordained my father, what you call simplex, which was done all the time during the Second World War, which means that a man can be ordained to, what, say Mass and perform some of the sacraments. He could not uh, hear confessions. And, and until uh, well, another year of tutoring and, and uh, you know, the, the, the conclude the formation of the priesthood. So um, that's the way it, it worked out on June 14, 1968, here at St. Benedict's Abbey in the Abbey Church by Archbishop Edward Hunkler. So following your uh, ordination, you, were late, you would go on to do some uh, parish work up in Burlington, Iowa. So what was that experience like just after you are... Uh, ordained with your father and your brother, you're just immediately sent out? Is that how that all came about? I was sent to our largest parish at that time, Burlington, Iowa, for four years. And my father remained on location doing all sorts of, of various assignments here. My brother was over at St. Joseph's Parish here in town and then, then at Mar Hill. So um, um, I was uh, using my priesthood with all of its various expressions at a, at a, a very interesting time, a very challenging time, um, all sorts of things going on within, within Burlington. Um, just to mention a few, you had a, a, a large uh, grade school, maybe 200 students. You had a convent with about maybe eight, eight to ten uh, sisters of Notre Dame uh, right there beside the rectory. Then you had a Catholic high school, Notre Dame High School, with maybe 200, 250 students, and uh, adult education, several other parishes, uh, so many other things going on. Parish councils are just getting started, and um, all sorts of other challenges. Uh, I relish a challenge, so I wanted to, to get beyond just a regular parish, so I joined the Kiwanis Club and met quite a few of the town fathers, which turned out to be a real advantage, you know, because of, if you want to know the, the broader community and you want them to know you, you have to go to where they are, and it worked out very, very fine that way. It's also a time when, <clears throat> when my father asked me, what would you like for a hobby? And a lot of the Kiwanians were pilots, private pilots, 
and the, the fellow who was in charge of the ground school was a Kiwanian. So I decided I wanted to become a private pilot. And it was just a wonderful distraction, you know, from the regular work of being, a, being a, on a parish priest. When you're up flying, you cannot worry about what's going on in the parish. When you're in the air, you can't worry about what's on the ground. I, I suppose that's very true. So uh, as you moved on from that, uh, you what point did you start studying? Uh, you mentioned before uh, recording flying back and forth to St. Louis to get your uh, advanced degree in theology. So can you talk a little bit about that? Well, just briefly, uh, J.D., I have three <clears throat> a master's degrees in theology and then a doctorate in moral theology. And what leads up to all of this is I discerned early on that the regular preparation for priesthood, which is four years of graduate in theology, just wasn't enough. It did not uh, give me uh, sufficient, uh, what, uh, uh, a complete, uh, comprehensive view of how faith relates to all the various problems within the 20th century. And so I always wanted more. So early on, <clears throat> early on, uh, I, I spent most of my summers pursuing another degree. It was the only, the only way I could. We were so shorthanded even then, uh, I could not be freed up from my responsibilities as a, as a parish priest. So uh, it so happened that um, uh, Ozark Airlines <clears throat> had a flight uh, that included uh, from Burlington, Iowa to St. Louis, and it was uh, half fair for clergy. So um, I was very fortunate. I went to Webster College and to take in their program for a master's degree in religious education. Did you and, select that just because of its uh, location, or did you, uh, be, you know, because of that flight back and forth, or why did why did you choose Webster of the different places you could well, pursue was, that degree? At, at that time, the emphasis was on catechesis, you know, because I was doing so much catechetics, you know, for the uh, for the parish, for the for the for the whole city, for for the the Catholic high school, for adult education, etc. And the only place that was then within access for me, I had to return from my studies back to the parish every weekend. Now, that's horrendous when you think about it. But the only way you can do that is you have to have access to the airlines. And so St. Louis and, and the program, the master's program at, uh, at Webster College uh, uh, sort of fit the bill. Uh, I must admit that uh, uh, the program that I had there was... Uh, very leftward leaning. It was very much of the um, what experimental type, uh, very very critical of, uh, of of the church, uh, and uh, taking all uh, taking liberties with Vatican II documents. Not what the documents said, but what the media was interpreting them to be. But um, it was a that was my first experience, you know, with with another another master's degree. And uh, I benefited in many ways from that. So uh, following that, as you kind of transitioned into uh, coming back to uh, Kansas to serve at the University of Kansas, if I have the timeline right, after you went from Burlington, came back here. And so the monks here were serving, as I understand it, at the Newman Center down at uh, KU in Lawrence, uh, where uh, Father Brendan, who would later become the abbot of St. Benedict's Abbey, he was the chaplain there for a while, and you assisted him a little bit. So can you talk about serving the students at uh, uh, KU? So my second assignment, 
I'm a four-year man. My second assignment from uh, 72 to 76 was Newman Chaplain at the University of Kansas. At that time, um, Father Brendan Downey was teaching in a school of religion, and and um, Father Conrad Piller was uh, uh, taking a sabbatical in, in, in uh, chemistry there. Uh, we lived at the same rectory. So uh, I spent four years as a Newman Chaplain. It was quite an experience uh, dealing at, at a state university where most of your Catholic students are, and uh, the Catholic faculty and, and all that goes with the university life and, and the secular element that goes with that. But uh, again, it, it impressed upon me I needed more background still you know, to, to address the, the issues that, that would continually come up. How do you relate faith to contemporary issues, to, to all sorts of problems arising within science and technology and, and so many other things? And so I wanted more. I needed more. And so with that, I was able to find a very fine program in academic theology versus pastoral theology uh, at, at the University of San Francisco. And uh, it so happened that they were able to bring in, because San Francisco has such a magnetism about it, especially during the summers, right? But they could bring in some of the best, well-informed, and, uh, and uh, highly skilled theologians from around the world. So it was a magnificent experience of, of real graduate study in, in theology. Mm. And I, I, I really treasure that. So I was there for four summers and one semester basically all the time when I was at Lawrence and sometime when I was you know, back here at, at Atchison. So that, that I, I could summarize that by saying that uh, um, I, my experience at KU helped me under, to, to understand what, what uh, the importance was of the, Catholic, of, of the church to relate itself to higher education, especially at a state university. Where, where most of, of our Catholic students are located. Is there any uh, one sort of uh, experience, a uh, seminal moment sort of that happened uh, during your time at KU and in San Francisco that you could point to that kind of was formational for you? There's so many things. It's kind of hard to narrow it down to one. Um, um, I, 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 so many things come up. There were so many, what, controversies. There's so many issues um, at that time, for instance, um, you had the uh, the uh, Pearson Humanities uh, program at, at uh, the University of Kansas, which was quite successful in its own way, but in in, uh, in, in, in a huge conflict with with a secular environment, and eventually they were forced to shut down because of the the secular element uh, simply could not tolerate that much. Catholicism, but uh, here I'm right at the thick of that, you know. And uh, but 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 to, to watch all of these things, um, then also this is a time when you had all the various types of, of thinking, of, of ideologies, of theologies, and sometimes they would clash. Very often they would clash, and you're trying to piece your way through those, you know, which is uh, which uh, types of thinking agree with the faith, and which contradict the faith uh, where does it where does it start pulling apart and how do you try to bring these things together you know to synthesize things correctly how do you that's what i mean that's a, so um you can see that's a huge challenge absolutely but if you're if you're in a, in a situation like that you have to f confront those problems otherwise uh, your what well, your religion becomes very very marginal, very peripheral, 
it's kind of a pious thing you do, but it really doesn't. It doesn't get into the what into the public square, in, into the and, and affect public opinion. It's not really not a working element, a shaping element within the society. And as we all know, we're all called to be evangelizers to bring the gospel into the public square and and uh, allow it to have its influence upon the world we live in. So following your time at KU, you said you're a four-year man, so uh, where, where did uh, 1976 take you once you were finished with KU and the University of San Francisco? The Benedictines had that post at KU for, for 19 years, and then because, because uh, our numbers started dwindling, you know, after Vatican II, uh, there were quite a few members of our own community were leaving the community, so we had fewer and fewer members, uh, and that means that uh, we could cover fewer and fewer posts. So we return that post back to the archdiocese, and yours truly uh, went back to to uh, to the abbey, and then my next assignment was to be a an instructor in theology, and uh, one of the one of the uh, uh, chaplains of the of the college. That would be for the next four years, from seventy six to eighty. And then, where, in nineteen eighty, where did you go from there? In nineteen eighty. Uh, 1980, um, I uh, decided that it was time, if I was ever going to do a doctorate, I better start getting serious about it. And uh, uh, and so all the uh, preparations fell into place, and I was encouraged by Abbot Brendan Downey at the time to get into moral theology. Um, I'd never paid that uh, heavy attention to, to moral theology before, you know, no more than a typical priest would. But, um, uh, but Brendan said that's where the real problems are today. You know, we need someone to address those. So um, uh, that's, uh, that was my thinking. And so happened, and J.D., that I, when it comes to morality, I'm more interested in social ethics than in personal ethics. The two go together, you know, but it's fascinating to me what goes into a just society. So I was interested heavily in Catholic social teaching. And um, so I was looking around for different universities, Catholic universities, if it offered this. discovered no one offered a doctorate in that. <laughs> so um, you start um, uh, narrowing the field down to, well, where are the best uh, resources for, for pursuing, a, especially writing a dissertation, you know, you know where, where would you find the resources? And I narrowed it down to Catholic University, because my goodness, that's where the <clears throat> the center of the government is. In Washington D.C. Washington D.C. That's where you have the Library of Congress, one of the best libraries in the world, with all the languages Certainly. and all the stuff. It was phenomenal. And then Catholic universities had all sorts of direct involvement with the government, especially with people like uh, um, John A. Ryan and even our own Edgar Schmiedler, you know, they were heavily involved with the FDR uh, era, uh, 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 making connections, you know, with the New Deal and, and all the rest. And also, one of my uh, favorite um, moral theologians was a layman by the name of, of uh, William E. May, who had visited uh, the college here several times, you know, and uh, I was very impressed with his grasp of things. A very, very orthodox, uh, uh, very articulate, uh, uh, a real scholar, and full of fun. So um, those were all the reasons for going to Catholic U, and it turned out to be a very, uh, a very good uh, choice. So uh, how did you employ that uh, doctorate when you came back here to Benedictine College? 
So I would I finished up my degree around eighty eighty six eighty six or so, came back to the to um, to the college, and um, I thought that now with a with a earned uh, doctorate I'd probably spend the rest of my life teaching teaching moral theology at uh, at the college. You know, there's such a great need for that. So um, my assignments then was to again be college chaplain and also um, uh, teaching theology, especially a moral, different dimensions of, of moral theology, which of course would include the sexual ethic. And Humanae um, Vitae um, was uh, extremely controversial, and um, I knew the arguments quite well you know, of, of those dissenting from church teaching and where they simply don't hold water, and was able to, to make, a, I think, a very good presentation to students and others interested as to why the church takes the position she does on sexual ethics, and especially where contraception and sterilization goes terribly wrong, why, in effect, they are the taproot of the whole culture of death. And great confusion, great confusion within the church, outside the church. There was great confusion here at the college. At that time, I thought that, um, that uh, well, I'm dealing with the, with the professors, right? I'm dealing with academics, right? That a good argument should hold some weight, right? Absolutely. Wrong. <laughs> so... That give me obviously that's a great challenge. But through all that, you, uh, along with a group of students, uh, were able to found a group called Ravens Respect Life. So why was that uh, important for that to get going at that particular time? And uh, could you talk talk a little bit about the uh, students at Benedict that were uh, involved with you in that? Roe versus Wade, 1973, <clears throat> and that sent sh- uh, shockwaves, you know. All over, all over the world, uh, abortions kept increasing. It increasing. Planned Parenthood and and uh, uh, abortion mills uh, uh, popping up all over the place. You know, uh, even on campus, you would have uh, uh, the experience of an abortion. So um, um, it was just terribly important that we address these things. That and so many other issues: radical feminism, the new age. Um, um, uh, homosexual, uh, uh, the acceptance of homosexual behavior, acts, and, and all of the rest, all of that was, was uh, impinging upon, upon a college. Uh, you know, um, the first places where ideologies hit are universities, colleges, seminaries, <clears throat> and monasteries, or religious houses. It, it hits there first. That it starts seeping into the broader community, the broader Catholic community, and, and the secular society. So, if you're going to resist that, if you're going to address those issues, then then um, you you look for uh, people who are sympathetic, who who would understand what the Catholic values are, and and are trying to understand what those values are and how to give a rational answer as to why, if something's wrong, like contraception, what makes it wrong? Why should it be foregone? Why should it be be resisted and not simply accepted or accommodated to? And that was quite a, a struggle, quite a struggle. So um, to try to address the philosophical underpinnings behind your own position. Oh, surely, surely. See, that's what it is. That's what higher education is all about, right? You know, you're trying to present what's the rationale for the positions you take. You know, the, that Christianity has a clear vision of, of what the world is, of what it means to be a human being. 
of who God is, and that that eventually uh, is also uh, spills over into an idea. Well, what is human behavior? What is good? What is evil? What is right? What is wrong? What is just? What is unjust? And what makes them so? But to be able to address those and, and to try to promote them, which is exactly why the church founded uh, Catholic colleges and universities. That's what you expect to happen there. So you would also expect to find people who are, what, uh, congenial with, with those struggles and those values and are basically siding with the church and not with those who are fighting against the church. Avoiding a culture of relativism as it exists. So uh, the, um, uh, especially around, um, oh, I would say around the late 80s, the late 80s, uh, um, uh, a group of students were very much working with me and they were, interestingly enough, they were all quite interested also in priesthood. And uh, eventually, we decided what's really needed is another com- another student committee on campus, namely one that would address specifically the defense of the unborn, defending the innocent that were unable to protect themselves. And so um, with the help of folks like Dave Gitrich, you know, who's been with Kansas for Life for years and years, died this year, you know, he came and gave us a, a few ideas as to how to go about starting up something like this. And then the students uh, took it and ran with it magnificently, magnificently. As a matter of fact, you might say it was one of their great, great interests. More than a hobby, it was a, almost a passion of theirs. And they set up a, a magnificent uh, um, uh, a student-driven um, uh, committee uh, and, and then proceeded to find ways to uh, promote these values and defend the sanctity of all human life and to bring in speakers that would, uh, would, would assist that and to counteract prevailing uh, attitudes and, and ideologies that were awash within, within the college. Very good. So following your service at the college, you talked about how you thought that might uh, go on in perpetuity, but that didn't work out exactly as you had envisioned. But you went on from there to be the president of Human Life International. So how did that come about? And what is Human Life International? What do they do uh, around the world? Well, as I, as I mentioned, there were conflicts, <clears throat> conflicts between me and faculty, um, um, me and um, uh, uh, some students, uh, uh, me and, and even some religious. And eventually that led to um, um, I resigned as a chaplain because I was simply not getting the support that I needed to be effectively a chaplain. Um, and then I discovered that my contract was not renewed to teach the following year. So here's your truly with an earned doctorate, lots of pastoral experience, and <clears throat> no place to go. <clears throat> so um, um, I started looking around because, you know, I'm, I had lots of energy then. I'm 76 now. I don't have that energy. But at that time, I wanted to use it constructively and put it to good, good, good use. So I looked around and uh, discovered a very strong pro-life group started up by another Benedictine, Father Paul Marks from, from a... <clears throat> from a St. John's Abbey in Collegeville, and uh, he was doing remarkable work. He had a doctorate in sociology. He knew the issues. He knew society well. He knew, he knew his faith well, and, and he knew where the fight was. He was an in-the-trenches type guy. 
So um, I gave him one week of my vacation. I think it was 1990, summer of 1990. At that time, they were in Gaithersburg, Maryland. And uh, I was just, I was uh, in awe of what all the possibilities and the prospects were out there. Here you had a, what, a group of people, he and his staff and volunteers, who understood church teaching on all these matters uh, magnificently and, and right with the program. Then uh, the funding, uh, good funding uh, you know, from volunteers. You, you would have uh, secretaries, staff. You had all of the equipment you know, you would you would have uh, easy access to uh, uh, to fax machines, and uh, 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 in other words, in other words, I found that if I were able to be part of that organization, instead of being restricted to a small platform in a, in a small Catholic college, I would have the whole world at my fingertips, and and uh, uh, full backing, full support. And, and people would want everything that I had in terms of my, my, my training as a moral theologian. So it was just um, providential you know, that um, such an opportunity arose. So what were a few things you were able to accomplish uh, uh, as you know, leading Human Life International? I was there for 10 years, all throughout the 90s, and um, eventually became the president and the uh, CEO of the, of the organization. But a, a Human Life International is primarily an educational organization trying to, to uh, recruit and, and uh, instruct uh, other uh, good people, you call them pro-life people, uh, who want to make a difference in their own communities, who want to what, protect the innocent, who want to fight abortion, who want to promote the sanctity of life and marriage and family and all of the rest. And so we provided them with the tools they needed, tools like uh, good conferences, magnificent conferences, bringing in some of the best speakers on the various life issues, all of the life issues, but we could bring them in and uh, set up a world conference every year, you know, at a different location or smaller regional conferences. Now, mind you, that's just in this country, the U.S. of A., here, we looked upon the U.S. of A. as a place for, for fundraising for our worldwide apostolate. So yours truly becomes involved in traveling, not only this country in Canada, all over this country in Canada, but now the world. So all sorts of, of, of efforts to, to, to work with local pro-life groups in other countries. You name the country, HLI was, was, was with them, which means we would set up conferences with them. Or in the case of Africa, I've worked at over seven countries in Africa. It's kind of interesting. We have, we've had two priests here from, from, a, from a, uh, Ghana, and I find out I know more about their, their, their continent than they do. I tell them, when are you going to learn about Africa? <laughs> you know, but, but anyhow, that would all involve speaking tours, Huge speaking tours, of of uh, of conferences, of um, of uh, leadership formation, but the whole idea is to build up the the the, uh, the pro life movement within the country so that they could protect themselves against population controllers, and the whole in uh, influx of uh, of materials and ideas, uh, contraceptions. Uh, 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 legalizing abortion, uh, euthanasia, uh, uh, spreading king condom all over creation, especially in the universities and among young people, uh, but to be able to resist all of this, 
and, and to, uh, to, to, to give them a true sense of what the culture of life is, how to promote it, how to build it, how to defend their own people, and, and, and truly work towards a sense of, of, of authentic development for their country, a true sense of development. It was uh, magnificent stuff. I remember once um, our first time into Moscow, into, into Russia, you know, after the uh, Iron Curtain fell. Um, the, we gave the first conference ever, pro-life conference, in Moscow. Oh, it was just amazing, just amazing. We were using, for our hub for Eastern Europe, we were using Poland. And of course the Polish, you know, besides knowing their own language, they all had to learn Russian. So they were very helpful in setting these things up. But uh, it's just amazing to be able to go into these, these countries that were, were promoting the culture of death so strongly and now being able to counteract that, to try to clean the act up and to, and to get their own people equipped and, uh, and, and ready to, to uh, protect them themselves and their own babies. So uh, following your time with uh, Human Life International, you went on to you, uh, mention sort of working uh, to promote family, natural family planning, and things of that nature. So uh, after your time with Human Life International, what uh, were you up to during that span of time? In the well, last, come, uh, 15, come the year 2000, J.D., I had spent 10 years on the roller coaster. <clears throat> if you're in a movement as dramatic as the pro-life movement, believe me, you're on a roller coaster. And it can wear you out. <clears throat> I was in my 50s then and still had energy. <clears throat> but uh, I decided by the year 2000, after 10 years of that, that it was time to pass the baton on to the next generation with their energy to do justice to the situation and the great demands made upon it and all sorts of other complications. So with that, I returned back to, to, to my monastery here at the year 2000, and um, I thought I would become a, a regular monk again, you know, whatever, whatever my superiors would be asking of me. So um, I was doing just kind of normal, regular things. There was a great need for the Hispanic <clears throat> uh, ministry, so I spent some time learning some Spanish you know, and, and helping out in different parishes. I um, was um, the retreat master and was giving all sorts of retreats using uh, church documents to try to promote an awareness of these things and um, um, doing all sorts of, 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 of various things, you know, monastic-related. Then, after about a year and a half, I was asked by Father Dan McCaffrey, who knew me quite well from HLI days, to come help him with his work promoting natural family planning. He's the founder of NFP Outreach, and um, um, great man. He's, he's also a, a theologian, STD, <clears throat> and uh, um, he knew that I knew the issues and that I, what, the, the tremendous amount of public speaking and writing and, and all of the rest. So he said, Matthew, I need help. There's so much to be done out there. You got to come help me. So with that, I got clearance from my superiors to go on with uh, with Dan McCaffrey, and that means I was working this whole country. So um, Atchison, you know, is Kansas City. It's right in the center of the country, and the the, the airports centrally located. So um, uh, when I wasn't uh, in the air or on location somewhere, I'd be back at the monastery. But um, usually every weekend, I'd be flying somewhere in the country, giving an NFP weekend, or maybe Father Dan and I would be giving a clergy conference to all the clergy of a diocese. 
namely on how to preach Humanae Vitae. As you well know, the clergy have been dragging their feet very, very slowly on this whole thing over the past 50 years. They, they, they lost their tongue. Um, they don't seem to know how to use the pulpit to help people understand, well, what is God's plan for human sexuality? Uh, the culture's talking about it. The culture's saturated with sexuality. Why can't you talk about God's plan for all these matters from the pulpit so they have a clear understanding of well, what, what is good marriage? What is a good family? What is true spousal love versus simply a, a genital act instead of a marital act? A world of difference. A world of difference. So uh, clergy conferences is a very big part of this. And then you would have uh, still other things, um, um, working with Catholic doctors and nurses. It was appalling for me to discover that among Catholic doctors, maybe 1% would promote NFP. Maybe. The vast majority had sold out. If they had gone to, to uh, state uh, schools, university schools, uh, they didn't get any courses in, in medical ethics or bioethics. <clears throat> they got a course in the customer's always right. Mm -hmm. And that's the way they thought. And that's where the money was. And to try to, to what, woo them away from that into understanding what their faith calls them to do and, and, uh, and, and to, to work with the church in building up strong marriages was a, 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 a huge task, a mission impossible. But you had to start you had to start doing it. Can you imagine, if, you're, if the doctors are with us, can you imagine the difference that would make? If most of them are against us, then you would expect, expect the, the Catholic uh, um, uh, participation in, in contraception and sterilization to be exactly what it is today. Make sense? Absolutely. So just to, so, uh, as you, uh, how did you uh, sort of uh, transition out of that work into what you're up to now? So... Um, I know uh, right now you're providing a lot of uh, ministry to uh, prisoners across the country through uh, the Abbey's Prison Oblate Program. So if you can talk about, you know, closing out the NFP outreach chapter of your priesthood and, and the uh, current chapter that you're in, uh, providing service to the imprisoned. Well, as you've noticed, I respond to real needs. And um, so I was with um, NFP outreach by the Dan McCaffrey <clears throat> between 2002 and 2016. Around 2016, the market dries up. In other words, there's there are very little requests coming in from bishops for dioceses or from parish priests that are pastors for, for our services to help them. And so that being the case, there was no need of me, what, accepting a, a salary for services not provided. And so, uh, the, uh, you know, you read the handwriting at the wall, and, and, you're, and you say, well, uh, this particular ministry has come to its end for me. So I return again back to the Abbey, and uh, uh, as a good monk does, you simply what, you leave yourself open to, where's God leading you now? What are the needs? What are the real faith needs? And you address yourself to those. So out, uh, out of the blue, not really, but out of the blue, um, uh, we remember Father um, Lewis Kirby from the former Holy Cross Abbey um, at, in Canyon City, Colorado. Within a 10-mile radius, you had nine prisons. And the, the monks there at Holy Cross had developed a prison ministry, as you would expect. 
and Father Kirby had, had adapted, tailor-made, the Benedictine Oblate program to the needs of Oblates in prison. And then, and he carried that that, uh, that mission on when when he uh, transferred here to Atchison. Then he had the audacity to die when he was what eighty nine, and then the whole pro- program went into limbo because nobody nobody wanted to take it on. Their plate was already full, yours truly included. Mm-hmm. But then, out of the blue, providence again, two of these oblates in in Canyon City. Write me a letter. How they got my name, I don't know. I think it was Lewis Kirby in heaven. You know, they said, this Oblate in prison program has done so much good. Is there any way you can help revive it? It's it's done so much good. Now, J.D., how do you say no to them? So I told him, well, look, I can't do a whole lot for you. I got other things on my plate. I won't be the director, but I'll try to see what I can to get the things going again. Well, one thing led to another, to another, to another, and then the NFP apostolate dried up, and so I had much more time. So um, it's it's a remarkable program. If you could imagine men, young men from what ages twenty to eighty, in prison for whatever their sentences are, in in a prison life, that they're looking for structure and meaning in their life. And they actually identify with monks like me in St. Benedict's Abbey. And by the way, your magazine, Kansas Monks, they identify with that. You know, they say, of course we can identify with it. They're just a bunch of dudes like we are living under one roof. (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, they have a harder row the whole than I do or, you know, or anybody living in a monastery. So um, 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 one thing led to another. Um, I get a lot of help, you know, from these oblates in prison. And uh, the whole thing's done by correspondence. I can't possibly travel all over the country to 23 different prisons, you know, to give retreats and whatnot. Besides, at 76, you don't have the energy. See? So anyhow, anything's by, everything's by correspondence. And there's over 430 names now in the database how many uh, were there when you began your service? When I, when I took it over, of course, now you got to remember, the thing was in limbo for a couple of years, Certainly. so it's shrunk down. But, yeah. but the numbers when I first took it over was less than 100. Now it's, uh, it's up to about 440, and it just keeps growing. It's, I don't advertise. It, uh, it advertises itself. You know, the, the men like it so well, they tell it to others. And chaplains like it so well, they recommend it to others. And the newsletter, we put out a monthly newsletter. The Oblates helped me write the thing, by the way. Mm. But the newsletters have a, a life of their own. They circulate, and, you know, the name and address is on there, and then the correspondence begins. So um, <clears throat> um, I'm looking for more help, especially among our own, our own Oblates of the, of the Abbey here, to take a greater interest in their fellow oblates in prison, to help with the correspondence, to help become pen pals, to give them the encouragement they need, to answer their questions, and uh, to keep the program alive. I won't be here forever, you know. Well, that is a full uh, priestly life, most certainly, Father Matthew. So want to thank you, certainly, uh, on behalf of the l- listeners and whomever else that uh, for your 50 years of priestly service, and maybe ask that uh, you close us out here uh, with a blessing to finish out the podcast. Well, thank you, uh, J.D., for helping us get the message out to our people. I thank you very much for your wonderful efforts in this regard. 
May the good Lord bless all of our audience, those who hear this. May they be encouraged to follow his will for them, to become evangelizers, to bring true values of the gospel into the culture they live in, and to become effective evangelizers. And so may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, descend upon each of you, remain with you, and inspire you all the days of your life. Amen. Uh, once again, this has been MonkCast, a podcast from the Benedictine Monks of St. Benedict's Abbey. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, kansasmonks.org.